0: Hi, everyone. This is Criterion Channel Surfing, and I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. Just a quick note before we begin today's show. Apologies once again for the delay in getting our April episodes edited and out onto your feeds. Crisis communication work schedules, health issues, and shortened bandwidth for after-hours editing have continued to keep episodes from getting out as frequently as I would like. Like our other episodes that have been produced since the COVID-19 crisis began, the episode you're about to hear is lightly edited. We also had some technical issues with the recording that has caused the audio quality to be a bit lower than I would normally like. In my segment with Matt Gasteyer, I did forget to ask him what groups and organizations he'd like to encourage listeners to support during the current crisis. When I checked in with him as I was editing, he did mention that he'd like to encourage listeners to continue donating to their local independent art house theaters, as well as supporting Doctors Without Borders and Partners in Health. We'll have links to all of these organizations in our show notes. We'll be recording our May episode soon, and just to give you all a heads up, it'll be a slightly different format than normal. We'll have on a few guests for an informal conversation about the month's new and expiring titles, and we'll release the episode fairly soon after recording so that I can take some time off during the second half of the month from both my day job and the podcast. And once again, I want to give a quick mention to the Cinema Cocktail Virtual Film Festival, which will be running from May 15th to the 31st using services like the Criterion Channel, Ovid, Mubi, Shutter, Hulu, Netflix, and more, along with the occasional on-demand title. For anyone who'd like to join me during that online film festival, I'll be posting the full schedule pretty shortly, along with links to where you can screen each film at cinemacocktail.com. Thanks for listening, and now, here's the show. You're listening to Criterion Channel Surfing, a podcast dedicated to the films of the Criterion Collection streaming video service, the Criterion Channel. I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. Robert Taylor, frequent contributor to the Criterion Reflections and Criterion Now podcasts, as well as a screenwriter and critic at the Robert Taylor Odyssey, joins me today to make him laugh with comedies that are only available on the Criterion Channel. But first, I'll check in with Matt Gasteyer of The Complete Podcast to discuss entry points to the films of Kazuhiro Ozu. Stay with us as we start surfing the Criterion Channel. If you enjoy Criterion Channel surfing, check out Just the Discs, hosted by Brian Sauer. Just the Discs is a podcast about Blu-rays. In each episode, Brian Sauer will go through a stack of discs from various distributors and talk about them. Find just the discs wherever you get your podcasts. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com. I'm here once again with Matt Gassier of The Complete Podcast, now reaching the end of the third season, this time exploring the films of Krzysztof Kieslowski. He's also created a series of essential letterbox lists for anyone just beginning their journey through the Criterion Collection called How Do I Criterion? Matt, thank you so much for joining me again today. Uh, thank you for having me back. Always a yeah. pleasure. Well, we're going to shift gears just a little bit, and we're going to talk a little bit about filmmaker entry points today. And I thought, what better filmmaker to kick things off with than with Yasuhiro Ozu, a filmmaker who is really well represented on the Criterion Channel and whose work spans silent films, black and white cinema, and who moved into color films for the last few features. So. Matt, uh, last month you talked a little bit about your history with Ozu, but in case anyone missed that episode, why don't you just briefly share how you first encountered Ozu's filmography and what that experience was like for you?
1: Sure. Uh, I came to Ozu through Tokyo Story, which I think is a pretty common thing. You look at the sight and sound list and there's this movie called tokyo story on it and you're like hmm i've never heard of that i think i'll check that one out um it's a uh you know it's a two two and a half hour movie about the uh, parents uh who's who find out that their kids uh aren't aren't as uh into them as as they might have uh, wished and uh it's it's not the most uh upbeat and uh <laughs> and happy-go-lucky watch that you can come across. Uh, and I, I was, I was not taken with it. Um, I didn't really connect with it immediately. Uh, part of that was probably that I was in my early twenties at the time. It's not necessarily a movie for, for a young person, uh, to be able to fully understand the emotional stakes and then kind of put, put him away, uh, on the shelf to revisit for another day. Uh, as I was watching all of the Criterion Discs. I re-encountered him and it took me about two or three movies before I really came around to his style and sort of understood the rhythm of his movies and the appeal of his uh, generally very simple stories and quite moving character arcs and uh, Mm. presentation of kind of the human condition in particular the condition of uh, families during the era from the 1930s to the 1950s uh, and early 1960s in Japan, which was obviously a tumultuous period for the country. And I think there's also a lot of universality in his movies that I respond to a lot um, in my own relationships with family and and just general outlook on uh, the evolution of life's changes it's something that that i uh, connect with on a very profound level Mm.
0: so you had that experience for yourself there but if someone was maybe coming to ozu fresh do you recommend tokyo story or do you have another entry point do you have another film that you think is maybe a a better way into Ozu that you think would be a, a really great way for people to to maybe encounter his films for the first
1: time? I do definitely do not recommend Tokyo Story for uh, your first Ozu film. I think that there is a complicated nature to the film, and it's such a particular story. Uh, Ozu called it his most melodramatic film, which I think probably goes a little too far uh, Mm. and i i would actually point to something like tokyo twilight is pretty melodramatic yeah Um, yeah but i think the best places to start with ozu are two films i I would pick out um, in particular which are uh, late spring and good morning and they're very different Mm. movies Um, late spring was made uh, in post-war japan in 1949 It stars Setsuko Hara, who is, in my opinion, the most beautiful uh, actress who ever lived, uh, and uh, just a a pure movie star, somebody who who the camera truly loved. And uh, it's the story of a a woman who lives with her father and is in the standards of Japanese culture, uh, getting on in age for somebody uh, who is not married, and uh, it's kind of the story of her process of getting married and moving out from her father and starting a family and sort of moving on with life's big milestones. It's a very simplistic story on the surface. The plot is very mild <laughs> to, to, mm-hmm. to use a word, mm-hmm. um, but it's an incredibly complex film emotionally, and there's a lot going on underneath the surface, like in all Ozu films that I think uh, the film becomes richer coming back to. But I think for a first time viewing, it's the best representation of Ozu's late period style, which he's most known for, keeping the camera still, generally speaking, it's a tatami mat view uh, that the camera takes. It's slightly lifted above the ground and almost always sort of full on. He only used a 50 millimeter lens, so there's no sort of warping of the or of the space in terms of uh, focusing on one character or opening up the the view. So you're really getting a flat perspective of these characters and sort of mm. um, very carefully composed images. Um, and the way that they're edited together can sometimes be jarring. He, very famously continually broke the 180 degree rule where you you can flip around from one side of a character to the other side where they're facing opposite directions in in the two shots but once you get used to it you barely notice it i think he he put a lot more trust in the viewer than the average filmmaker did but ultimately, it's just a very basic and moving story about um, this very deep emotional connection that this father and daughter have. And I think, for that reason, it's a it's a very very welcoming film. Good morning, on the other hand, is still incredibly welcoming, but it's also one of Ozu's latest works. It focuses on two kids who go on strike to get a <laughs> television set, and that's only one piece of the story. It's really a movie that depicts an entire community in this uh, out on the outskirts of Tokyo and in a new uh, sort of subdivision that was built uh, after the war as part of the kind of economic explosion that happened in Japan during the 1950s. And it's, I think, a a strong representation of Ozu as a social satirist um, in similar vein to someone like Chaplin or Tati. It's a very playful movie. There are a significant number of fart jokes, which would be I think, surprising <laughs> to anybody that knows Ozu from Tokyo story. but it's a uh, it's it's essentially a movie about the humorous way in which people communicate in polite niceties without saying what they actually want to say, uh, and how people who are living in close quarters can often have miscommunication. And part of the reason for that is these polite elements of society that have been put in place to avoid friction can often create friction because of the inability to genuinely communicate with a person on an honest level. It's a, a very wry sort of slanted look at uh, society, but in a very gentle sort of ribbing way. Ozu, I think more than anything else was a prankster. And mm. I think this really comes through in this film he has a bit of a um a bemused removed glance at his characters in this movie and it allows the rest of his filmography to open up in a way that other movies don't because it's a satire and you start to see humor in more of his other films the more that you recognize it in this movie and i think that's key to understanding ozu as somebody who was fundamentally trying to entertain his audience Um, he was not a sort of art house director who wanted to make grand statements and i think that's a really important thing for people to think about when they're watching ozu's movies these these were films that were created for mainstream audiences in Japan, mostly middle-aged, older, slightly more conservative moviegoers, small C conservative, and people who uh, wanted to see their lives reflected back to them in a beautiful and compelling and entertaining way.
0: Yeah, I love your the way you you think of late spring as this entry point in back when my wife and I were first beginning to date and I was sharing with her some films that were important to me and some filmmakers that were important to me. I was uh, introducing her to Ozu with Late Spring as well. And that was the film that got her hooked on Ozu. And when *Film Struck* ended and before we knew that Criterion Channel would be back, uh, Ozu was the filmmaker that I knew that I wanted to really work my way or at least try to get as many of the films in as I could that were on the channel uh that was the filmmaker that she decided she was going to try to join me for as many films as possible because you know his work is so uh, is so powerful and I think that that late spring that film is 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 such a perfect film and I think that if you if you if you watch that that piece you you can't help but be entranced by the performances by what he is doing in that very simple story, the elements all come together so perfectly, uh, and he uses these two actors beautifully. And as we watched through so much of Ozu's filmography over the course of a couple of weeks, we also fell in love with Chishu Ryu, who's another you know staple mm-hmm. of Ozu's filmography. And there's just something about this man that to us anyway just embodies grace and warmth and humanity and uh yeah it just was uh i I just think i love that that you have late spring as your entry point there and uh i would hi i i totally recommend that and i and i love uh having good morning in there as well so yeah this is this is good
1: i would also be uh uh chastised uh by by ozu fans to not note that a large a large portion of his career was uh, in silent film he started making movies yeah. in the late 20s uh, if you are somebody who uh, enjoys silent film and i certainly count myself among those people um i i'd also uh, recommend i was born but which is yeah. uh, available on the um good morning disc i think it's probably his best uh, silent work Um, And it's a similar movie to Good Morning in the sense that it is about kids who go on strike. But it is a very different movie about a very different time in Japan uh, with with very different intentions, but also is very funny and I think illuminating in the sense that you really get an idea of Ozu as a social satirist um, from that movie. It's really a delight. Um, And his run from late spring to an autumn afternoon is his most well-known Uh, stretch. And I I certainly think it's pretty close to -to wall-to-wall masterpieces uh, for that 13 or 14 year run. But his silent work is significantly more diverse in uh, genre and style. And there's a lot to mine there. Um, And all of these films are available on the Criterion channel. I think there's only two or three one of one of his silence didn't make it over from filmstruck so there's two uh there's three total uh of his movies that are not available um which means you get you know 30 i think it's about 30 films of his uh that are available on the channel which is pretty astonishing and it's a an incredibly valuable watch through um so if you if you do feel like you want to dive in and 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 have faith in the journey that you're going on i also recommend chronological order for him because yeah. there's no film in his filmography that's not worth seeing yeah
0: well let's say that you have someone that is going to start with this late spring or a uh, good morning uh as their entry point just to get a taste of uh, ozu is there a, a route that you'd recommend that they follow if they aren't
1: going to go chronologically do you have a, a route that you th- might direct people through ozu I do. I have a, a curated Ozu list on Letterboxd, which is a list that I created inspired by the Ingmar Bergman box set that Criterion put out that is not in chronological order. It's uh, arranged like a film festival. And so I did the same thing with Ozu's surviving works. About half of his silence are lost, unfortunately. And it it's structured around sort of the different Large themes and settings that he uh, depicted, whether it's you know focusing on families, focusing on fathers and daughters, and daughters being married off, crime films. He had a substantial number of sort of noir influenced work or or gangster influenced work uh, in the early years, and um, so I think. If people want to check that out on my uh, letterboxed, I recommend that. If if you don't want to watch all of his films and you start with Late Spring, I think the following two films that he made with Setsuko Hara, Early Summer and Tokyo Story, the three of those movies make up the Noriko trilogy because Hara plays a woman named Noriko in all three of the films. It's not the same person, so the films are not related in any other sense, but they are all quite wonderful films that i think mm-hmm. generally speaking stand up as as his towering works and so if you feel you know you want to tackle uh, more of these these bigger uh, bigger films then i recommend watching those movies um but but ultimately from late spring to his final film in autumn afternoon which is many people's favorite of his films i don't think that there's a bad film in there certainly in the films that are available on the criterion channel all of those movies in that run i consider to be some of the best movies ever made so that's a great run to work your way through and then you can cherry pick the films from before that there's some great stuff there as well but that's a that's gonna last you for quite a while and you will be yeah. well rewarded
0: that's great do you have a favorite uh ozu is it like uh, choosing a favorite child?
1: My favorite is Late Spring. I would probably, if somebody forced me to say, I would say Late Spring was my favorite movie in general. If I had a Sight and Sound Ballot, it would be my number one.
0: Mm.
1: I also... I do want to give a shout out to both an Autumn Afternoon, which I think is really spectacular and a great final film and Equinox Flower, which I don't Mm. think gets enough love. It's his first color film. And like Good Morning, it's one of his lighter works. And Despite the fact that it has a somewhat similar story to Late Spring, it focuses on a father and daughter relationship. It's an entirely different tone and just a a really delightful movie in every way. I, I think it deserves to be mentioned around his best films. Our friend Mark Herney just texted me the other day asking for advice his teenage daughter uh, was, he was going to introduce Ozu to his teenage daughter and asked me which film he, he thought I should show her first. And one of the ones that I mentioned was Equinox Flower along with Late mm-hmm. Spring and Good Morning, because I think it's a, a great movie for the younger generation. That's probably taking a bit of a, um, a cynical eye towards us uh, old fogies. And I think it's a, a great movie for, uh, for an entry point for a kid of that age. And just a, a really, really fun watch and a beautiful movie. Very few directors use color the way that Ozu does, and that's a great example of it.
0: That's really great. Obviously, we could probably uh, <laughs> continue going on with Ozu, but as just an entry point for Ozu, anything? any last thoughts you have to uh, wet people's appetites for really diving into Ozu?
1: I just want to stress his accessibility. I think it's a thing that's often overlooked in his work. Paul Schrader so famously grouped him in with Bursone and Dreyer. And Mm. I love Bursone and Dreyer. Um, I think that they're, great filmmakers. Their films, uh, with a few exceptions, are very dense and philosophical works with a huge amount of symbolism and true art house masters. And I understand where he was going in terms of there is there is definitely cert- certain deep philosophical things to be mined from Ozu's work. But I think that he's much much closer to someone like tati or chaplin these are these are films that were designed to be consumed and entertain and be entertaining to people and i i think people should approach his work with that in mind because these are not sort of difficult mountains to climb as much as i enjoy a a tarkovsky film uh, this is not that and I think yeah. going in with enthusiasm and with a willingness to sort of connect with these characters on a very basic storytelling level is going to get you huge rewards from these films early on. And then you can do the hard work after you fall in love with these worlds. Um, I think that that's the the proper order for appro- mm-hmm. approaching those
0: as I was thinking about why why talk owes you for this first entry point. There's also something just so comforting about so many of his films, right? And I think that, you know, we're all in the middle of quarantine and we're stuck at home. And there's something so reassuring about his outlook on the world. And there's something I don't know, there's I find something so fundamentally human and refreshing and beautiful and uh i i just i find his films to be so comforting in in so many ways you you could see his his joy his love his deep humanity in every everything that he was doing
1: yeah i i totally agree i think the mixture of of melancholy and love of life in his movies is what makes them so comforting it's a it's a recognition of the difficult things in life are often mixed up with with the joy of life yeah and that's okay it can be very hard but it's always okay and these things have gone on before and they will go on again and certainly as you mentioned in this incredibly difficult time we're going through right now i think that's a very important message
0: yeah yeah Well, before we wrap up, uh, I just want to check in. Where are you with your journey through the complete Kishlowski?
1: We just recorded White this past week as we're recording this. Um, And so that will probably be out around the time uh, that this episode is released. And then we will be covering three colors red his final film and we'll do a wrap up episode. Uh, so it's been, I believe a little over a year since we started wow. this, uh, Kieślowski journey and we are uh, closing in on the end here and it's, uh, it's been a wonderful experience.
0: That's great. Where can people find you online, Matt?
1: i'm matthew eg on letterboxd and that's where you can find a link to my curated ozu list and the podcast is uh, at the complete pod on twitter
0: great well we'll be right back with more criterion channel surfing as robert taylor and i try to make them laugh with comedies that are only available in the criterion collections permanent digital library stay with us If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, make sure to check out The Magic Lantern Podcast, hosted by Erica Long and Cole Rulane, exploring the films we love and the things we love about them. The Magic Lantern is a film podcast hosted by Erica Long and Cole Rulane devoted to sharing their enduring cinematic memories. Join them for an ongoing, informal discussion of the classic and contemporary films they love and the things they love about them. If you've been looking for a podcast to explore old and new favorites with fellow film lovers, you've come to the right place. New episodes every other Monday. Find out more at magiclanternpodcast.com. Welcome back to Criterion Channel Surfing. My guest today is Robert Taylor, screenwriter and critic at the Robert Taylor Odyssey, and we are getting ready to dive into the back catalog of Criterion's permanent streaming-only digital library. Now, because the channel releases so much incredible limited content each month, it's easy to overlook some of these corners of their permanent library. So here on the podcast, we try to pay special attention to these titles and give you a few films to check out that you may have missed. Most of us are in some form of quarantine and self-isolation right now, so we thought we'd change things up a bit and give a few recommendations from the Criterion channel's lighter side as we try to make them laugh with comedies from the channel's permanent streaming-only library. If you'd like to follow along at home, Michael Hutchins has compiled a Letterboxd list of Criterion streaming-only titles. You can find a link to that in our show notes. All right,
2: Robert. It's been so long. I'm so happy to be here.
0: I know it's been so long it's been all of 10 seconds 10 seconds 10 days you know we'll let people make up their mind so before we dive into the uh the actual uh the films that we're going to talk about I'm I'm just kind of curious here are you a are you a fan of comedies what what are the the types of things that kind of get you going with comedies what do you look for in a comedy
2: I'm a fan of good comedies Ever since I discovered I Love Lucy when I was growing up, I've been a fan of great comedy. Mostly uh, television comedy made me want to get into television writing. Uh, It's odd that I'm writing dramas now, but uh, shows like Maud from the 1970s uh, really inspired me. And I love how they can tackle topical issues. While still seeming, uh, while still making us laugh simply by being human. The thing that I love about comedy is it puts a spotlight on our humanity in ways uh, more serious dramas don't have the ability to. So I love comedies, whether it's uh, the 1930s screwball, whether it's uh, the classic silent films. Charlie Chaplin is one of my all-time favorite filmmakers. And he touches my soul in a way few other artists do. I love laughing. So, mm. and I enjoy attempting to make people laugh. Uh, I don't know how successful I am, but at least I try.
0: Mm, mm. That's great. That's really great.
2: Now, what about you? What do you
0: love? You know, I, I, it's interesting. Cause I, I you know, I, I tend to not be a huge comedy fan. I, like some, but I find so many comedies to be so puerile and uh, obnoxious uh, that it takes a lot for a comedy to really grab me. As I, I actually struggled with uh, this theme this this uh, in choosing films, uh, especially as we look into the next episode, as we look at films on other streaming services. That was a real challenge for me, uh, trying to find good comedies that were not... Kind of some of the classics, man. It was it was rough, but uh, I do I do really like smart comedy. I like comedy that is um, thoughtful. I like bittersweet comedy. So I am a I will probably be a diehard Wes Anderson fan until the day I die, mainly because of uh, the experience I had in seeing uh, Royal Tenenbaums on opening day, and breaking down sobbing in my seat. It touched me on this deep emotional level in a way that I, I still don't know that I can completely understand. So there's something about that kind of that uh, that comedy that 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 hits you in some some deeper places. Uh, so I think that's the stuff that I really gravitate towards. The give me a comedy that's that's bittersweet, uh, or give me a comedy that is sharp and biting, and uh, uh, I tend to gravitate towards those, though. Uh, uh, I am becoming more and more enamored with 30 uh, screwball comedies, and especially the the films of Ernst Lubitsch. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's my that's my experience with comedy.
2: I mean, I'm sorry, and I hope that you find more laughter soon. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's already working.
0: That's right. That's right. Well, let's uh, let's dive into our films, Robert. What uh, what's the first film that you have uh, brought for us to discover today?
2: I decided to, uh, after seeing The Kid Brother earlier last year, uh, I decided to check out Harold Lloyd's Why Worry. Now, it was uh, directed by Fred Newmeyer and Sam Taylor, and it was also notable for being the last movie that Lloyd uh, made with producer Hal Roach. I'd never seen it before. I'd, oddly enough, never heard of it before, despite the fact that I very much enjoy uh, Harold Lloyd. So, ostensibly what the plot line of the movie is, Harold Lloyd plays a hypochondriac who is sent to a made-up country to sort of pay attention to his health, feel better, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and accidentally falls into a revolution in the country. Now, <laughs> uh, as the movie began, the, the made-up country is based on Mexico, even though they call it Paradiso in the film. And I immediately was incredibly nervous that the movie was going to be all sorts of racist, and I was very surprised to see that uh, the movie actually is uh, more interested in exploring uh, the dangers of imperialism. It also explores the audacity of Americans to expect other cultures to uh, to sort of bow to their needs, and it also really, in interesting smaller ways, uh, explores cultural appropriation, all while doing the classic Harold Lloyd thing. Now, there are a couple moments that still don't hold up as well as you want them to, but yeah. for a movie to... Tackle these subjects, albeit in a very light comedic way, deserves all the credit in the world. There's a couple classic Lloyd set pieces. I especially liked one where he befriends a friendly giant, as one is wont to do, in slapstick comedies, who has a toothache. And so there's about a four-minute sequence where Lloyd is trying to get the tooth out of the giant... And he attaches a rope to it and he's trying to pull it and he's running up on a building and he's jumping off the building, still holding it. And of course, the tooth just is refusing to come out. It sounds not as funny as it is, but (laughs) it made me laugh a lot. And it's only about an hour and two minutes, I think. And I was genuinely surprised by how engaged I was. It's not top tier Lloyd but it's still a solid uh, four out of five for me.
0: Well, that's fun. That's fun. I do find that Lloyd can be a, a real delight. Uh, I don't enjoy him quite as much as I enjoy Keaton and Chaplin, but I do find there is a, an ease about him that I find surprisingly modern that I, I, I was really surprised by the first uh, few films of his that I saw that uh, I did not expect to enjoy quite as much as I do.
2: I feel like his movies feel the most modern, even though Chaplin's are the best and Keaton has the best set pieces. I feel like uh, Lloyd's sort of stand up the most uh, when looked at through a modern lens.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is great. This is this is one of those ones that I feel like, again, I feel like there's so much Lloyd in the collection that I feel like it's easy to overlook some of these lesser known corners of uh, his filmography. Yeah, I think that's that's really fun.
2: And at an hour, what have you got to lose?
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's I think, one of the, the benefits of some of these silent films, right? Uh, you can pop them in, and it's really, they're easy watches, right?
2: Yeah, you, the time passes so quickly, and the scores are always great. It's just, it's fun in all the right ways. I think even you, who hates comedy, would like it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, well, my my first film is uh, a taxing woman, directed by Juzo Atami from 1987. This one uh, is directed by the director of Tempopo, which was one of those uh, real charming delights that I uh, discovered a little before the disc was released by Criterion. Uh, it came and played at my local art house theater, and. This is uh, an early uh, one of the early films from him, and it is so much fun. It is kind of one of those uh, almost an 80s action comedy about tax auditors. And uh, okay, (laughs) it is it is an absolute blast. Uh, It stars his frequent muse. Uh, Have you seen Tempopo? Yes, it's delicious. Yes, so uh, the the lead in Tapopo, who is also uh, Itami's uh, real-life wife, Noboku Miyamoto, uh, she plays a female tax auditor who is desperate to climb the ranks. Uh, she wants to be a, a gung-ho, uh, the best tax agent there is, and she wants to uncover the the nefarious practices of Japanese companies uncover hidden income she's uh ready to take down the hidden accounts of of bad guys and uh she persuades her boss to uh let her uh look into the hidden accountings of a string of love hotels in love the area. hotels, yes <laughs> uh, and uh she can tell they they seem to be avoiding paying their taxes and uh, it's this long, drawn-out process, and, uh, and a cat-and-mouse game between her and uh, this underworld boss. And it is delightful, it is charming, uh, and yet, like, uh, like so much, uh, you know, I've only seen a couple of films by Itami, but he also seems to be really interested in a little bit of the grotesque. Uh, so there are uh, the kind of the physical deformities of the characters and uh, uh, it is it is fun it is fascinating and uh, again you don't think of tax auditors as being action heroes and being into the all the surveillance and the spyware and uh and yet, it is so much fun. And it, again, feels like every lethal weapon, diehard action movie, and yet with high finance crimes.
2: Now, would you say that this is the best movie about taxes aside from The Untouchables?
0: I actually think this maybe is better than The Untouchables. <gasps> Gasp! I mean, you know, that's just me. I think Atami knows how to, you know, just like Tempopo is a western food movie, this is a action finance movie. And yet yet there is always that playful comic element to it. And and he never loses sight of the genuine kind of human moments as well. He centers, you know, the story on Miyamoto's character and uh, the the sacrifices that she makes as a uh, a, a female who's kind of sh- you know looked down upon by her uh, fellow tax auditors and trying to to make it in a boys club it's just uh it's it's a it's a great film i i would highly recommend this for anyone uh, looking for maybe again a bit of Something that's fun, something that's funny, but maybe a a, a little bit more, uh, a little bit more meat on its bones. Awesome! I have I
2: have added it to uh, my list as you were talking about it. It yeah. sounds way more fun than doing my taxes, which I still have to do.
0: Yes, I'm sure it's much more fun than doing your taxes. Uh, my wife and I uh, really both enjoyed it together, and I think we're going to probably try to watch A Taxiing Woman Returns, the sequel. Uh, oh my at some God, point, there's a sequel. <laughs> yes. Uh, and all of Itami's films are on the channel, and so I do think that his stuff in particular are our, our films that are just really exciting. I'm glad that we have access to all of his films. Robert, what is your second film that you want to talk about today? So, uh, I'm not sure everyone
2: knows this, even though I mention it in probably every single episode that I have ever taped, whether that is anything Criterion-related, but I love Jacques and for some reason I have never, uh, dived into A Slightly Pregnant Man before, and I thought, what better excuse than checking out this wonderfully titled film? I was Fairly shocked that it was not included in the box set, uh, especially considering that it's Marcello, and I can never pronounce his last name, Mastriani.
0: I think so, yeah.
2: We'll we'll say yes, and then we'll see what happens. And uh, Catherine Deneuve, it also has music and several songs by uh, Michelle Legrand. So I thought it would be an essential, however, it wasn't done, so I figured I would watch it. Now, before I talk about my thoughts on the film, I want to say I love the title of Slightly Pregnant Man. I think it's a great, great name. It has two other titles, one uh, in French and one in Italian, both of which somehow managed to be better than the English title. The French title is The Most Important Event Since Man Walked on the Moon. Tell me that is not a great title.
0: That is a very good title.
2: Yeah, and the Italian title is Nothing Serious, Your Husband is Just Pregnant. I love it, I love it, I love it. The film itself is problematic but interesting. There is some stuff specifically about LGBT that does not hold up, so I'm letting you know in advance you are going to wince. However, I think that it is a fully... Uh, I fully recommend it, uh, knowing with that asterisk right at the beginning, because it is just a silly, fun film. It bombed uh, uh, upon its original release, and I think it sort of ruined Demi's career for a few Mm -hmm. years. However, looking at it today, it feels much more modern than it should. It manages to strike an interesting balance that only Demi seems to be able to do, of we're just sort of on a lark but we also have something interesting on our mind there's this great the premise of the film in case you didn't know is there's a guy and he's pregnant and his name is not arnold schwarzenegger that is a shout out to junior a (laughs) movie that i feel like we have forgotten existed probably because it's bad However, uh, Marcello plays, I'm just going to say his first name so I don't make a bigger fool of myself, plays a driving instructor who is engaged to Catherine Deneuve. He somehow becomes pregnant, and all of a sudden men all over France are becoming pregnant, and he is a model for paternity clothes. Not maternity clothes, paternity clothes. How exactly he's going to push the baby out is not a thing that the movie covers, thank God. But the most interesting stuff to me were the little political barbs that Demi puts into the film. There's some very interesting stuff about abortion here. There's a line that goes something along the lines of, if men could get pregnant, abortion would be a sacrament, (laughs) Uh, which (laughs) really, really made me laugh. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The first two-thirds of the film, I think, hold up much better than the finale. Uh, Oh, I also have to give a shout-out to Catherine Deneuve's blue fur coat that she wears early in the film. This is a Demi film, so of course colors are all over the place. It's Uh, visuals, it's almost a visual orgasm like he normally does. Um, the last third, the final, the twist, how everything is resolved is unfortunately uh, very anticlimactic and a, a bit pat. Uh, I was annoyed by the ending. However, the mediocre to me is still fantastic to, uh, for yeah. in comparison to most other films. I would give it a solid three out of five and recommend that you check it out after you see all of his other major works. <laughs> mm,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really good to know. I, uh, this is one that I have not been avoiding, but it's definitely one that I have maybe had down the ladder on my Demi scale because uh, I haven't finished my way th- through the, the Demi box set on my shelf because I, I just have kind of felt like it was probably slider Demi.
2: And you would be correct.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, uh, and I do love Umbrellas of Cherbourg so much. Uh, I do love uh, so much of Demi's work that this one was just kind of like, oh, I'll get to it eventually. Uh, but it's good to know that it's still it, that a lot of it does hold up pretty well. You know, even Donkey Skin, which is not my favorite of Demi's film, I still really love. I still think it's, uh, there's so much, so many interesting things going on there.
2: He always paints right around the edges of the frame, which you gotta love.
0: Yeah, yeah, and so I think that it's good to know that even in something that maybe is not as successful, he still is doing something really interesting here. So that's great. That sounds really fascinating, and uh, yeah, I'm eager to check this one out now.
2: Now, what is your second film, my friend?
0: So my second film is uh, a film that I happened to see during the waning days of Filmstruck, and it absolutely was exactly what I needed in that uh, moment. I had just been through a pretty major car accident, uh, and I needed to laugh. And uh, Chinese Odyssey 2002 from Jeffrey Lau directed in 2002 or released in 2002 uh, as the title would suggest uh it completely fit the bill it was an absolute delight it is so much fun jeffrey lao uh he worked uh some with stephen chow who also directed kung fu hustle and shaolin soccer Uh, Wong Kar Wai did some work on this as well so there are some uh, there's some bleed over here uh, between some of the the Hong Kong filmmakers of the time it is so much fun it is silly it is the story of two uh, members of the royal family in uh, the Forbidden City a young emperor and his uh, sister who decide that they don't really want to live in the Forbidden City anymore and so they decide to escape and leave and dress as paupers and uh, she dresses as a young man and they decide to go out and see what the outside world is like there are elements that feel a little like shakespeare Uh, so we get some elements of twelfth night a little bit as the um the young woman uh, encounters a brother sister duo who run a restaurant and the brother thinks that this young woman dressed up as a boy would make the perfect man to marry his sister, but then she falls in love with him. So, you know, romantic complications as are to be expected in these types of situations. It sounds almost Shakespearean. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 got all of those types of kind of mistaken identities you know, I think in some ways there are you know, some things that don't hold up as well, like you were talking about with A, a Slightly Pregnant Man. I think there are some of the, the things that you would see in the, the late 90s and early 2000s with LGBTQ issues. It's not quite as bad as you might see in the 80s and early 90s, but there are some things that do make you wince a little bit. But on the whole, it, it's all played in that kind of Shakespearean farcical style. And uh, it's got, it doesn't take itself as seriously as something like A Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, where it, it's definitely designed to play off of the, the success of that that film and the, the wave of um, wuxia films that were beginning to make their way back into to America at that point. It is fun. It's playful. It is campy in all the right ways. It is over the top. It is so much fun. There are two films by Jeffrey Lau on the um, channel that are part of the permanent collection. There's this one and then Eagle Shooting Heroes. Uh, Eagle Shooting Heroes is from, I think, 96, and it's a little more of a straightforward uh, adventure film with all of these farcical elements in it. Uh, I think Chinese Odyssey 2002 is a better film, so this is the one I'm definitely recommending now. But this one just, as you watch it, it, it just, it brought a smile to my face the whole time. And again, the, the Shakespearean elements are so, they're just, they're on the surface. They're uh, the, the romantic relationships. Uh, again, as the, the princess falls in love with the brother who's trying to set her up with the sister, it uh it just it you can't help but be reminded of things like 12th night or uh, as you like it uh and uh it just it it's it's charming and fun and delightful from beginning to end and uh yeah it's one i i would highly recommend people check out when they're looking for a little bit of escapist entertainment
2: and most importantly is there a chinese odyssey 2001 or a chinese odyssey 2003
0: Uh, I don't believe uh, so. No! I think this is a standalone. (laughs) This is the only one. But the film does star some great uh, actors like Fei Wong and Tony Leung as well. So you are getting some great Wong Kar Wai collaborators as well.
2: And they're not bad looking either.
0: (laughs) No, 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 exactly. So... Uh, this is a lot of fun, and if you do enjoy any of the other uh, films by Stephen Chow, uh, I, I know that I always really enjoyed the the things that he was doing. This is uh, definitely right up my alley. Yay! Well, those are four films to catch on the Criterion channel that you may have missed. Why Worry, directed by Fred Newmeyer and Sam Taylor. A Taxing Woman, directed by Juzo Atami. A Slightly Pregnant Man, directed by Jacques Demi, and Chinese Odyssey 2002, directed by Jeffrey Lau. Well, once again, Robert, while we're in the middle of this crisis, what are some of the organizations, groups, businesses, or anything that you would like to encourage people to support or maybe donate to during this time?
2: so for the past 10 years i've been working with a non in the los angeles area called the young storytellers foundation and what the foundation does is promotes literacy and creativity in grade school children uh, and high school students i personally am part of a program where we go into impoverished schools in the la area And the kids write five-page scripts over the course of eight weeks. Then I bring in film and TV actors, people like Tony Hale, Alexis Liddell, Nathan Fillion, and they act out the stories for the kids. The kids become rock stars. So once the kids were out of school, unfortunately, it seemed like uh, we were kaput for a little while. However, we're taking the program online. Uh, We're going to be doing uh, our big shows that way. So, if you have any interest in helping children, which should be everyone listening to this podcast, please feel free to check out and donate to Young Storytellers. Now, what about you, Josh? What are you going to highlight?
0: You know, I am going to continue to highlight... Kind of the support for local, uh, your local cinemas, I think those are going to be really struggling right now. And uh, I do think one of the, maybe the best ways to do that right now, uh, Criterion has their Art House America campaign. If you go to GoFundMe and look for the uh, Art House America campaign, you can uh, donate there and they are collecting money to then distribute to independent movie theaters across the U.S., and it is a way to help support those, uh, those organizations. One of the great things about this is that they have also put restrictions on the way that money can be spent. So that means that uh, this money can't be spent to prop up executive salaries, but that it has to go to make sure that people can get paid. Uh, I mean, it's it's it, it, this is supporting like the cinema workers. This is supporting... Uh, the to make sure that the the cinemas can stay open to pay rents and things like that and this is not about upgrading technology this is not about renovating facilities this is about really making sure that these institutions that support the cinema that we all really love can stay open and uh, I think that's really really key right now and also I uh, you know I've said this on the last episode I'm going to continue to say it do consider donating to your local food banks. Um, those are the areas that are really on the front lines of making sure that people who are suffering during this crisis are able to uh, have the food that they need. This is a crisis that the longer it goes on, the, the more people are going to be without work and are going to be suffering. And so do uh, give what you can to help support those uh, organizations. Here, here, Robert, once again, I just want to thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I always love our conversations. This was a lot of fun. Where can people find you online? Uh,
2: they can check me out on Facebook. They can follow me on Instagram. Uh, or they can track down my website at theroberttaylorodyssey.wordpress.com, where I am checking out all things film noir.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun.
2: I concur wholeheartedly.
0: You can find Criterion Channel Surfing at CriterionCast.com and our website, Cinemacocktail.com. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching for Criterion Channel Surfing. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join us in the Criterion Channel Club Facebook group or send us a message at CriterionChannelSurfing at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd, at Josh Hornbeck. Our logo was designed by Doug McCambridge of the Good Times Great Movies podcast. You can see more of his design work at dpmdesigns.com. Criterion Channel Surfing is a proud member of CriterionCast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com and support the work of CriterionCast at patreon.com slash CriterionCast. Criterion Channel Surfing is listener-supported, so please consider donating to the show at patreon.com slash Hornbeck. For just $5 a month, you get early access to all regular and bonus episodes of the show, and for $10 a month, you'll have the chance to give my guest and I a film to discuss in a special Patreon-only bonus episode. I'd like to continue to thank all of our regular contributors. It really does mean so much. On the next episode of Criterion Channel Surfing... Robert and I will return for a follow-up to today's episode in which we'll discuss comedies that are available on other streaming services. I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com.